the slow, slow, slow fade. Good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing? Good morning again. So great to see you. If you're new here, I haven't met you yet. My name is Nick, one of the pastors here. Uh, as that bumper video showed, we're continuing our sermon series in Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there. And uh, our text today is the famous account of um, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus to arrest and try and potentially murder Christians until the resurrected, risen Lord stops him in his tracks. And it completely changes both his identity and his destiny for all of eternity. And um, the title of my message today is The Hope of Jesus. The Hope of Jesus. And the reason I want to emphasize hope today is because, well, is because often we don't have it, right? As we are hard-pressed circumstantially or internally waging war of the, of the flesh or uh, uh, conflict interpersonally, all these things, often hope is hard to come by. And some of the lies we believe when it comes to hope for personal life transformation, but also life transformation for others, one of the lies we believe is this is what has been will always be. What has been will always be. When we view our lives, we kind of view our lives like this, like there was once a time in our life where our lives were like wet concrete. Anyone here to like go walking, you discover wet concrete, and then you panic on what to write in the wet concrete, right? And then all you got is like Nick was here, and you're like, oh, that was so stupid, but it's there forever, you know? And often we view our lives like um, the concrete's no longer wet. And we often define ourselves at our worst moments. And we define ourselves with our worst sin struggles. And we think we're hardened concrete. And then we shift, not just from someone who struggles with sin, but then we begin to adopt language where we use our, we use our sin as our identity, not our savior. And so we begin to say things like, um, you know, oh, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, uh, or, you know, I, uh, I'm depressed, or... Uh, I'm, rather than saying I'm a, I'm a child of God, blood-bought child of God, who, yes, still wars against the flesh, but it's under my feet, right? And I know what you're saying, right, in that, but we, 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 what we do is what we need to understand, what we'll see in this passage today is our identity always births our destiny. And the first thing Jesus comes and does is he gives us a new name, and then he gives us a new story. And there's no such thing, when it comes to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, there's no such thing as hardened concrete. There's no such thing as an identity he can't uh, rename or a story he can't rewrite. Amen? And so there's hope. There's hope for you and I today. If you're here today and not a believer in the Lord Jesus, there's hope in Jesus' name for you today. New life, abundant life, forgiveness a new identity, a new name, a love like you've never encountered before. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, there's still hope for you. I understand, yes, our sanctification is progressive. But on the scale of, of, of moving from being naive to hopeless, often a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so in our battle against flesh and sin, we don't want to become naive and we say, okay, this is my lot in life. I'm going, I, I know Christ forgives me, but I'm going to live a miserable life until glory, right? Like this is my cross to bear, this sin struggle. I have no hope of overcoming it, this anxiety or 
uh, this, this addiction that I can't shake. I, I'm not going to overcome. I'm not promised progressive victory over those things. So I'm going to shift from being naive that it's all that Jesus is just going to take it from me to I, I, I shift all the way over here. And this is often the land we live in. We're just hopeless for change. Hopeless for change. And what we learn in our text today is that hope for change is centers around an empty tomb. Hope for change centers around an empty grave. It is not, Jesus doesn't give a rip about what your past is, what identities have been proclaimed over you, what, what's in your rearview mirror. All that matters to us is, is the grave empty or is it not? Is it empty or is it not? Because it's empty. And if it's empty, then that means that the Lion of Judah is on the prowl. He's on the loose. And he can stop a murdering persecutor of his church in his tracks and change his life in a second. So there's hope for us in Jesus. His ways are not our ways. He is sovereign. His story might be different than the way we want to write our story, but as long as he is enthroned on the seat of the universe, you better, you better believe there is hope for your life because that's where our king is. And that's what we encounter in our text is a mighty God, a, a God who is alive, who is enthroned, who has the power to radically give new identities and new destinies. And listen, that's why you're here today. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're here today because for some of us, Jesus has done stopped you in your tracks, met you in the middle of your sin, and called you out of it. And spoke two words. Some of the two most powerful words. I'm getting to my conclusion. Mercy. Yes, I'm He says he meets you in your sin, and he says two words. Follow me. That's what repentance is. Stop following yourself. Stop following sin. Follow me. Follow me. So that's the invitation for us today. It's to follow our risen Savior, Savior who's conquered sin, death, and the, and, and the devil on our behalf, and he reigns in victory. And so we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, let me pray. But before I pray, I want to I throw this invitation your way. If there is hope for Saul of Tarsus 2,000 years ago, there is hope for you. If there's forgiveness for Saul, there's forgiveness for you. If there's new life for Saul in Christ Jesus, there's new life in Christ Jesus for you. If there's everlasting love on the table for a murderer whose name was Saul, you better believe there's everlasting love on the table for you and me. Amen? Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way. We open up our hearts to you, God. We don't want to do church well. We want to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Holy Spirit, do what you love to do and reveal Jesus to us, where he's seated, his posture towards us, what he's capable of doing. Show us his might. Show us his power. Show us his glory. I pray that you'd lift chins this morning, Holy Spirit. Give hope to the hopeless, Jesus. Rewrite stories today. Nothing is too difficult for you, Jesus. Give hope, Lord Jesus. And I pray that the rivers of living water that you promised in John 7, that you purchase for your people the rivers of the Holy Spirit, that for the thirsty and the hungry and the parched and the dehydrated, that those that you would bring refreshment the refreshment of your Holy Spirit today. Fill our sails afresh with awe and wonder, and, and may we drink richly of the delights of knowing you, Jesus.
and being known by you. So thank you for your love that drove you to the cross. And Lord, I just pray, oh God, that you would blow us away through your word of your radical grace and your radical love for us. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to go through this verse by verse, uh, verses 9 through, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 2. We're going to dive on, dive on in. Here we go. Uh, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so immediately in this text, we're reintroduced to a man named Saul. We've seen uh, him mentioned before in, uh, in Acts. And Saul is, is, if you know your Bible history, is the Apostle Paul. And uh, spoiler, spoiler alert, uh, Saul didn't come to know Jesus, and then Jesus didn't give him a new name, Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman name. Okay? So I'll start if that shatters some, some former preconceptions. Like, oh my gosh. It's much better preaching, you know, new name, new identity, but it's just not, it, it just, that was his Hebrew name, Saul. And then everyone kind of had a Greco-Roman moniker and that Paul was that Greco-Roman uh, moniker. So, so Saul is uh, the apostle Paul, but before we kind of know him as the apostle Paul, we know him as Saul of Tarsus. And this is what we know biblically and also historically about Saul of Tarsus. We know that he was a devout Jew from birth. He was, he had kind of a proud family legacy and lineage. He, he boasted in the New Testament scriptures to the Pharisees, Philippians 3, uh, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. So from birth, an Israelite, he was extremely, extremely well-educated. Uh, scholars uh, believe that by, the, by 21 years old, he had the equivalent of uh, two advanced degrees, two, two master-level degrees in the first century. And uh, what we also know about Saul is that he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees were a sect of Judaism that had arisen in response to the growing secularization in Israel. So the Pharisees had this passionate zeal for God's law and also like enforcing that law, like shoving the law down your throat kind of situation, right? That's what the Pharisees were. But Paul would even describe himself in the New Testament. He wasn't just a JV squad Pharisee, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And uh, to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize, you know, uh, the first five books of uh, the Old Testament, the Torah, and, and by Pharisee of Pharisees, what we know about Saul and what we see in our text today is Saul had climbed the religious political ladder. He was a direct mentor of one of the 70 Sanhedrin in this, the epicenter of Jerusalem was this theological, political, legal ruling body called the Sanhedrin made up of 70 individuals. Gamaliel was one of them. At the top of that 70 was the high priest. And we learn through the scriptures historically, that uh, Gamaliel shepherd and was a mentor to uh, the Apostle Paul himself. And we see in our text today that the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus is talking to the high priest. So long story short, this man is extremely well-respected and well-connected. All right, that's who the Apostle Paul, soon to be Apostle Paul, is in first century Judaism. But the most important detail about Saul of Tarsus is this. Is his hatred and hostility towards followers of Jesus, right? The sense we get in our text is that Saul of Tarsus, uh, his new life goal was to be the tip of the spear to eradicate this new movement called the way, followers of Jesus, from the face of the earth. That was his new life goal, his new mission. And Luke, the author of the Acts, says in verse 1 that he was almost, you get the impression of like, the, like he was a dragon, right? Like breathing, he says, breathing threats, of arrest and murder against 
the church. And so the context of our text is we know this, is that Saul approved the murder of Stephen. Approved the murder of Stephen. And after Stephen's stoning that Saul approved, there was a severe persecution that broke out in Jerusalem. The church in this, this embryonic stage was contained in Jerusalem. The persecution that Saul was the, the, the tip of the spear for scattered the church abroad. So the church scattered to Judea and Samaria and what we see in our text all the way to Syria. There's a pocket of believers that went to Damascus, okay? And this is the degree of Saul's vitriol towards believers of Jesus. Purging them from his kind of, you know, home city, Jerusalem wasn't enough, or or the, the hub of operations for the Sanhedrin. It wasn't enough to scatter them and get them out of Jerusalem. He wanted to hunt them down everywhere they scattered, okay? So I don't know about you, but me personally, um, I hate cockroaches. Anyone here hate cockroaches? Amen. So speaking purely hypothetically, just purely hypothetically, last year, 2020, we maybe just maybe had a cockroach problem here at the church, all right? Purely hypothetically, all right? It was 2020, nobody was here. They were doing construction underneath us, and uh, Jeff and I, formerly Pastor Jeff, would come to the office, and, and these, <laughs> I shouldn't be sharing this, sorry. But these cockroaches were so big, you like go to the, open the bathroom stall and you see a cockroach there like reading the newspaper on the, uh, you know, and then you try to get this thing out and he would square up on you, get on his hind legs. And next thing you know, you're, you're boxing it out with this thing. It was crazy, right? And I, I grew to have a hatred that I never had before for this new thing. This was a new thing. And we got them all eradicated, okay? But my hatred for these things, I would come in geared up and ready. I'd wear like my certain shoes like that. I could, you know, stomp them on, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, but my hatred didn't extend to this, right? This is, this is the, the degree of, of Saul of Tarsus' hatred for Christians. It, it would be like me saying it's not enough to get them out of here. It'd be like me going to Maton, which is our management company for this massive complex. That would be the chief priest. Saul goes to the chief priest, the, 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 the final law of the land, the authority, and says, do I have permission to go not just hunt them down locally, but everywhere they scatter? And so it'd be like me writing to Maton, hey, I'll be the tip of the spear. I'm going to allocate all my time, all my resources to make sure every single cockroach that is breathing will one day stop breathing. Okay? And so then I say, can you give me correspondence with, you know, that place next door and that suite next door and the basement underneath and get me permission, get me access to open up walls, to tear open floors and wherever they're like, you know what I'm saying? It's a whole different level. And that's Saul of Tarsus. And the reason I share that and want to hone in on that is this. If we were to ask the question in our text up at verse two, how close is this man to coming to know Jesus? Right? Like, like it would be impossible for, for Saul of Tarsus to come to know Jesus because you can't preach the gospel to him without wearing riot gear because he's going to start throwing rocks at you. Right? So, so, so from a purely naturalistic perspective, there's simply no way that he's going to come to know Jesus unless unless there's an empty grave and unless Jesus Christ is alive and unless he's a lion who's still on the prowl advancing his kingdom and unless he still has love for people in their sin to call them out of it and to call them to, into his kingdom. And this is what we see next, verses three through nine. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. 
And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless and hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so we're going to unpack this in three stages, but there's three things that Saul of Tarsus immediately learns about the Jesus he still thought was, he still thought was in the grave. Three things in, uh, we don't know how long this encounter was, maybe 30 seconds, and 30 seconds download. This is the download he gets. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The way is right. When Peter and John testifying before the Sanhedrin said, we saw him with our own eyes, the resurrected Jesus, the crucified Messiah, he rose on the third day where eyewitnesses. That's what they say on trial is we cannot speak of only, we can only speak of that which we have seen and heard. And in an instant, Saul, who's trying to kill all these crazies and saying death always wins, nobody rises from the grave and surely nobody from Nazareth rises from the grave. In an instant, he's face to face with the king of glory and, he is, and Saul's on his face on the floor before him. And this is how Paul retells the story in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. For I deliver to you as of first importance. You know what's in first importance to our faith, church? Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Our faith is founded on eyewitness historical testimony of people who saw the glorified Jesus appear to them. That's the foundation of our faith, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that, watch this, he appeared to Peter, Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And I love his humility here in verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, this is Saul, born, uh, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And so what we see is the historical fact of Paul, Saul's conversion. Non-secular historians, uh, nobody doubts the historicity of Saul of Tarsus walking the earth him being a Pharisee, him being a persecutor of the church, and him having a day, a moment, an instant, where he shifted from being the persecutor to the persecuted, where he shifted from being a murderer to one of the biggest missionaries for the kingdom of God, where he shifted from being a terrorist to an evangelist. Non-secular historians cannot deny the historicity of this, that this man would end up giving his life for what he saw and heard on that road to Damascus. He would, get, he would lay down his life for that real, risen, not a philosophy, a person who was resurrected and invited us into a new life following him, the way, the truth, and the life. Not just principles, but the principles of a person, the way of a person, okay? And what we learn here, the second thing Paul learns is he goes, my, 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 the Jesus that I thought was dead is standing right before me. And he goes, who are you? But he says something so shocking here. It struck me as I was working on this in verse, in verse 5. I believe it's verse 5. I'm not looking at my notes. Saul goes, who are you, Lord? 
Who are you, Lord? And the second thing Saul knew in that 30-second encounter was that whoever was standing before him was Lord and was his Lord. The weight of glory, the invisible, invisible, the immortal, just showing up on the scene. Like, listen, let me get back to my notes. Immediately what we see in this text is Jesus is king. It's not just that he had arisen from the grave, but where he ascended to when he rose. And where he ascended to where he rose is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that this universe, this earth has a final authority, has a king, has a ruler who is in control and is working out all things for his good and for his glory. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And what's so uh, amazing about the, the weight of the glory of this king is that all Jesus has to do, all we see Jesus do, is he manifests his presence. You track it with me? He just cuts off Saul in traffic. He's commuting to Damascus, right? He's going with fury and rage. And then Jesus just shows up and gives him kind of not like a diluted, uh, filtered version of his glory, unfiltered glory. Piercing light immortality. Paul knew, Saul knew in that moment, he was in the presence of something eternal, something immortal, something everlasting, the light of the world, the light that was emanating from the glory of Jesus shone so brightly on Saul, it blinded him. It blinded him. There was a physical reaction that he had, that we see in this text. He was blinded, he couldn't, he couldn't eat or drink for three days. Fell to the ground. We're not sure if he was, you know, if he was on an Uber, if he was in a you know, donkey or camel, or if he was just walking, but he fell flat like a pancake. Fell on the ground. Couldn't eat, drink for three days. Had to be, had to be uh, led, right? That's, what it, that's a picture of what it looks like when immortality meets mortality. When immortality manifests, and shows and peels back the, the veil of what eternal omnipotence looks like when he manifests. And that's what Saul discovered. And immediately he knew that whoever was before me, the first thing out of Saul's lips, who are you, Lord? He's king. And I think in the church today, one of our biggest needs, that's why I want to hone in on this, is just we need to regain a proper understanding of the majesty of our king of the majesty, the might, the power, the weightiness of his glory. That if he were to manifest like fully undevoted, like his, 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 uh, his glory to us, all of us right now would be on the floor. All of us would be on the floor, unable to absorb in our mortality, in our, in our, in our pre-glorified state, his glorified nature. You tracking with me? And often in the church today, we kind of have, which is great, and there's great books about this, um, and it's true, but we just have, we just believe Jesus is only gentle and lowly. And when you treat a king who's only gentle and lowly, which are Jesus' words, but that's not the fullness of his story. Yes, he's the lamb that was slain, and yes, he's the lion of Judah, right? And when we, when, when we have this pr- picture of, 
blonde-haired, mullet, blue-eyed, pale-skinned, guitar-playing Jesus, for lack of a better description, he's easily dismissed. It's hard to convince people to bend their knee to that Lord, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who just shows up, cuts off Saul in traffic, and he, in, in, in 30 seconds, his life is completely changed. And, and, and he's shown grace, and the grace has shown that he didn't, he didn't get evaporated into smoke <laughs> in the presence of the king. And this is a quote from, uh, anyone here like Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, I'm quoting it. I haven't read it. Yeah. Take it up with the elders. I might get fired for saying that. But uh, I've seen the movies. All right, everyone relax. Man, audible gasp. Um, mercy. Oh, man, jeez. Okay, gosh. Um, in Chronicles of Narnia, there's this lion who's Aslan. And, 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 okay, disclaimer, I'm going to, to butcher this. It's because I haven't seen it or read it. I've seen it, but I haven't read it, okay? So just, if I get this wrong, correct me. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll put something in the live stream, okay? Correct me. Anyways, there's this place called Nar- Narnia. It's under a curse. But there's this hope of Aslan, who's this majestic lion, who's going to redeem and renew Narnia that's under this curse, right? And then there's some people who enter this wardrobe, little British kids, and you know, and uh, they, encounter, they encounter these animals in Narnia who are kind of telling them the story, right? And this is verbatim uh, from uh, the book that C.S. Lewis wrote. And this girl, Susan, encounters this beaver who's telling her about Aslan. And I love this description. I love this description. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. Imagine a cute little British accent. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? And I love, I shall, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And I love the, Mr. Beaver's response. He goes, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And then he says this, he's the king, I tell you. He's the king. He's got the power to change, church. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because he's manifested in my life as king, and I lived hopeless for years as a Christian. Years as a Christian. This will be your struggle the rest of your life. You're forgiven, but where's the power to change? Where's the resurrected king that I know is true of scripture, and then when he shows up in your life, everything changes. And he takes what can never be taken, you can never take from you. And he gives you a new life. He rewrites your story. He's that, that, that whole rescue line. And I'm putting my hand on my daughter. And the Lord's just tilling the soil in my heart saying, church, you don't even know how much he's rescued me. The fact that I'm just here today with my family is a testimony of Jesus coming in. The lion who comes running for us and has the power to save and rescue us from the clutches of death. In the Gospels, yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly. And yes, demons beg for mercy in his presence. Paralytics rise and they leap for joy. This healing touch. He has the power to save. He is so good. He is so good, but he's not safe. And what that means is nobody in your life is safe. Nobody in your life is safe from the, from the reach of the line of Judah. Your life ain't even safe. If you're in the sound of my voice. He can, he, can, he can stop you on the way in the middle of your sin. He can appear to you. 
And this doesn't just happen here. There's story after story of this happening with people in the Middle East. Story of people happening in America, drug addicts having these crazy encounters, uh, addictions completely gone, and then they're loose to be commissioned for the preaching of the gospel. He still does this because the grave is empty. The king's on the throne and he's on the prowl. And then the third thing, and I'll slowly wrap up with this. is Paul, soon to be Paul, Saul, understands that Jesus is king. But the third thing he realizes is that this king is love. Jesus is love. What we see in our text is that yes, Jesus is king. Just man- the manifestation of his presence drops Saul to the ground. But this king is a king of grace. He's a king of mercy. And he's a king of compassion. And the reason this moment was so life-changing for Saul was not just the supernatural encounter. It was the radical, undeserved grace that this king bestowed upon him in this moment. Jesus appeared to Saul at his worst moment. He was caught red-handed in his sin. And when I say red-handed, I mean that his hands were dripping red with the blood of the saints. Caught red-handed. That leaves Jesus in love to say his name twice. Saul, Saul. Walking in ignorance, thinking you're actually honoring God when you're not. Saul, Saul, why are you, watch this, persecuting me? Persecuting me, my body, my body, my people. That's our identity. It is not our sin struggles. Our identity is in Christ together, his body, to the extent, this is how Jesus sees us. Saul kills Stephen, and he's persecuting the church, dragging men and women to jail and and arresting them. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It's not just the blood of the saints on Saul's hands in this moment. It's Christ's blood. It's what what Saul, and, and and you go into those moments in those mafia movies where the mob boss shows up, and the guy messes up, and he's on the floor begging for mercy, and the guy like, you know, like, What you'd expect in this moment is King Jesus, you know, just to pull a Thanos, snap his fingers and like, you know, turn him into dust, right? And then all the Saul's cronies are are scattering and then like lightning bolts are, you know, all that stuff like justice. No, 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 no. That's not what happens. The biggest head scratcher, the biggest shocker in our text is instead of a lightning bolt of judgment, man. He gets an invitation into new life. And in this moment of encountering both the pure holiness of the righteous king that causes a true and holy fear to come in the immortal sinner, the mortal sinner, he encountered both the pure righteousness of Jesus and yet also the radical forgiveness and mercy and compassion and simply put in the best sense of the term, that ruined Saul for life. That moment, this moment, the grace of God, the radical grace of God ruined him in the best sense of the term. Rocked his world. And not just his world, our world. The nations. The radical grace that was shown to Saul led to a radical new life where Jesus came in and rewrote, went into the hardened concrete of his life 
And where his identity was murder, Jesus rewrote it and said, he's mine. He's mine. That one. I want that one. He's mine. He's gone from murderer to a child of God in Christ Jesus. And it's not just his identity that has changed, but his destiny, his future. He's turned from a murderer to a missionary, a terrorist to an evangelist. And this is what Jesus Christ still does today. He gives new identities. He rewrites stories. He renews families. He delivers people. He heals them. He saves them. He's on the move. He's alive. This is what Jesus does. And some of you know about it. Some of you have tasted and seen his goodness. What he's capable of doing. His power, his might, and his love, and his grace. He's Jesus strong and Jesus kind. And Jesus comes. Which leads Paul to say in Philippians 3, he says this. <laughs> Sorry, my gosh. Forgive me. Sorry, I did this. is not in my notes. Philippians 3, 8. <clears throat> Man, do we know who our king is? He's so good. Philippians 3, Saul knew, Saul knew, Saul knew the grace he was shown. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And he lost a lot, church. He lost everything. He gave his life. He laid it all down. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, who extended him grace on that road to Damascus. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, <clears throat> but that which comes through faith in Christ. Gosh, the righteousness from God. It depends on faith. And I'm going to wrap it up with this. i got to stop. Okay. Is this. Often we read this encounter, and we go, man, Jesus showed up to Saul, and he just was protecting his church, and he wanted to rough up Saul a little bit. Show him who's boss humbling. And I was praying about this, and the Lord put in my heart, no, the reason this happened is because I love Saul. This is Jesus, the good shepherd, leaving the 99 and chasing down a murderer and saying, I love that man. I died for that man. And the way the blood on his hands is going to get redeemed and the way his new life is going to be restored through the nail-scarred blood on my hands. Because I absorbed his wrath. I died for him in his sin. Romans 5, 8, for that murderer for his sins not to be counted against him, but to be counted to the cross, nailed to the cross, so that he remembers it no more. And so there's hope for us today that Jesus, when he meets us in our sin, he forgives us of our sin, and he calls us out of our sin. And this is what I conclude. I felt led to conclude with Luke 5, the calling of Levi, the tax collector. Band, you can come on up. We'll, we'll go into worship. Luke 5, 27. I love this story. This is what Jesus has done in the Gospels. We see Jesus doing this in Acts, and we see Jesus still doing this in our lives. And this is why I'm standing before you today. It's because of Jesus Christ. And after this, he went out, Jesus, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. If you don't know who tax collectors were in the first century, they were scoundrels. They were scoundrels. They were liars. They were cheats. They were greedy. Nobody had any respect for them. And Jesus, Jesus meets Levi, caught red-handed, stealing from the people of God at his tax booth to fill his pockets. And Jesus said to him, two of the most powerful words to ever be spoken out of Jesus' mouth, follow me. 
And verse 28, in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the religious, self-righteous Pharisees, who know nothing of God's grace, and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look at the love of Jesus for us. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're here today and you're heavy laden, and you're burdened, and you know you're a sinner, Jesus loves you. And he's inviting you into repentance, which is simply dethroning yourself from the throne of your life, confessing his lordship of your life, receiving his forgiveness, and following him the rest of your life. Knowing that your sins, your past doesn't get to write your story, Jesus Christ rewrites your story. Everything can change to you for today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, everything can change for you today. Right now, he's here. He's alive. It's all true. He's king. And the best invitation he could ever give us is to follow him. So let's answer yes to that today. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Take a, take a moment, <clears throat> Jesus, before you to remember our stories. In a good way to remember where we've been, where you met us, what you called us out of, where we would be without you chasing us down. And we say thank you for the new identity, the new name, beloved, cleansed, forgiven, your sins remembered no more, washed by the blood of the Lamb, sin not in part, but in the whole, nailed to the cross. And Lord, thank you for the new life for those of us, Lord, who have tasted and seen your goodness. Thank you for the ways that you have saved us, you've delivered us, you've freed us, you've renewed things that we thought were impossible. You've restored things that we thought would never happen on this side of the grave. So we come before you, our King, our majestic, glorious, omnipotent King. And we worship you and we love you. So come, Holy Spirit, and bring about true repentance today. Soften our heart and hearts. Give us faith. Give us sight. Take our eyes off of ourselves. Shift our focus to Jesus and his love, his radical grace, his radical love for us. And may we leave, may your people here leave, worshiping you, singing your praises. For you are worthy of all of eternity to receive the glory and the honor that's due your name. In Jesus' name.